love the honesty of children. My wife's away, and so my youngest daughter said she would pray for me, and she looked at her watch and said, Lord, we pray that Daddy wouldn't go off-roading. We pray that he would stay on his notes. And then she finished, and she said, well, you don't need to say all that stuff about Elon Musk. So <laughs> we're off to a good start. Oh, it was wonderful. I appreciate that, Sizey. Friends, it said that uh, motivation is the key to success. So what motivates you this morning? What motivates you this morning? You know, Michael Jordan, arguably the world's greatest basketball player. We're not here to have that debate. Many think he is, uh, or at least he was. And he admitted that his primary motivation was fear of failure. He never forgot being cut from his high school team, and that failure forever haunted him. And for some, that motivation isn't failure, but it's wealth. So Jay-Z, hip-hop, rap artist, whichever you'd like to call, he's admitted, you know what, the music was really never about the rap, it was about money, and I wanted to be the most successful in the industry. Many say he is. Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of all time, his motivation, interestingly enough, has not been money. He's been honest about that. It's actually winning. It's succeeding. It's, it's beating others in the game. And money is just how you keep score. Or Elon Musk, sizey. Industry experts gave him, but at best, a 5% shot that Tesla would actually make it. But he wanted to do what no one else had done, SpaceX. Right? They begged him, his friends, not to pursue that vision because for him, SpaceX was about how he could colonize Mars in the future. They thought he was crazy, and yet that desire to change the world is what's motivated him to do the impossible, and remarkably, he's been quite successful. Take politicians, whether Richard Nixon or Bill Clinton, many other household names. Politicians may get in it at some point to help the people, but sadly, we know all too often that motivation becomes about power. So again, I ask, what, it may, what motivates you this morning? Is it, is it fear of failure? Is it success? Is it money? Is it power? Is it the need to win? Is it recognition? Is it maybe the approval of others? What would you say motivates you? And what do those motivations say about you? We're going to be thinking about these things as we go back to Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians. Let me invite you to turn there. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 15. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back before you, you can find it on page 966. Page 966. And if you are just visiting with us, you know, Paul had actually arrived in Corinth back in around 49 or 50 AD, and he had preached the gospel there. He had seen believers gathered. He gathered them into a church. He pastored that church. But when he moved on, that church in Corinth floundered without him, and new factions arose, and they questioned Paul's motives. They even belittled some of his own ministry methods and manner. And so, for example, in 2 Corinthians 10, some of them were saying, you know, his letters, yeah, they're weighty and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Right? That's 2 Corinthians 10.10. That's what some of Paul's detractors were saying about him. And it seems to the Corinthians, and by their standards, Paul wasn't 
impressive. He lacked the rhetorical eloquence. He lacked the the impressive appearance that many of the others had there in Corinth. And he certainly seemed to suffer too much and to exhibit too little of the Spirit's outward blessings. And so in this section of the letter, Paul's having to defend, really, the integrity of his own ministry and his life. And part of his argument has been, hey, listen, Corinthians, I never came to amuse you. Right? I'm not an entertainer. I'm not some performer. I'm an ambassador. Right? I'm an ambassador of God. That's part of where he's going. And thus, as he has said, Paul's aim is what? To please him, to please God. We saw that last week in 5.9. And especially so because one day... As Christians, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 10. So an evaluation, an evaluation is coming. And so how does that then motivate Paul? Well, listen in as we pick up 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right, so we're stopping there, and I just go back to that question, what motivated Paul? And friends, by implication, what ought also to motivate us in this life, right? Is it power, wealth, acceptance, success? Well, according to Paul, he had two grand motivations, at least here as we see, the fear of the Lord, verse 11, and the love of the Lord, verse 14. So I think more specifically, I think part of what Paul's argument is, and this is going to just serve as our two points if you're a note taker, right? The fear of the Lord motivates our speaking, That's part of his argument there in verses 11 to 13. And then he's going to go on and say the love of the Lord motivates our living, verses 14 to 15. So the fear of the Lord motivates our speaking, and the love of the Lord motivates our living. And so let's think first about how the fear of the Lord should motivate our speaking, how the fear of the Lord should motivate our speaking. Now, when we hear that word fear, we might think of, Words like terror or fright, maybe some kind of white-knuckled horror or thriller films like Cape Fear or Primal Fear, and I'm probably doubting my, uh, dating myself, but you can think of those kinds of ideas and images and maybe films. But friends, when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, there's an element, yes, an element to which we ought to be unsettled, right? God is not like us. His very presence would consume us. We read in Hebrews 10, verse 31, it is what? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So that's true. And yet we also tend to think of fear and love as opposing things, as opposites. 
So maybe you're thinking of 1 John 4.18, where we read that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Friends, when we read of fear there in 1 John 4.18, that is the fear in context of wrath, of eternal punishment, of final judgment. And the Christian, yes, the Christian doesn't fear in that sense, because the Christian is confident That the love of Christ has delivered him from that kind of spiritual death. Right? So for the Christian, the fear of the Lord, which is just deeply rooted in Old Testament wisdom, right? The fear of the Lord, well, it speaks more to reverential awe. It's to hold God. The fear of the Lord is to hold God in proper regard. It's to value God before all and to value God's priorities above all. That's what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to order our lives around him. And it's to recognize that we will all one day give an account to him. Which is just what Paul is talking about back in 510. So it's like a young child who recognizes the good authority of his or her parents. Does that child fear their parents? Well, sure, in the sense that they look up to them, respect them, hold them in high regard, see those parents as authorities over him. And yet such fear, right, that's not paralyzing for a young child. Such fear of of such godly, loving parents, right, that's motivating. Not paralyzing, but motivating for them. And they want to please. And so similarly here, in the fear of God, Paul wants to please God. How? By persuading others. That's what he says in verse 11, by persuading others. So given this coming evaluation at Christ's judgment seat, Saul is seeking, therefore, this life of persuasion. Which is, of course, exactly what he did when he came to Corinth in Acts 18. 18 verse 4, we read that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade, same word, persuade Jews and Greeks Or in Ephesus, just next chapter on, Acts 19, verse 8, we read that Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Or when Paul is brought before Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul is so bold as to be effectively preaching to Agrippa in his chains such that Agrippa responds, just blurts out, interrupts Paul, 26, 28, and says, in such a short time, would you, Paul, persuade me, Agrippa, to be a Christian? Paul's persuading everywhere he goes. And note, Paul persuades through proclamation. That's how he persuades. It is proclamation, not a kind of subjugation. So recognize that genuine Christianity, biblical Christianity, unlike, for example, Islam, has always spread through the proclamation of the word, not a kind of subjugation at the edge of the sword. That's how Christianity, biblical Christianity, has always spread. Proclamation and persuasion. And friends, I think that's a good reminder to us. And it should be a good challenge to us. Evangelism as persuasion. Because that's often not how the world will think about evangelism. That's not how all Christians think about evangelism. I fear to say that's not certainly how all Christians do evangelism. 
So Bertrand Russell, some of you will know him as the famous 20th century philosopher, Cambridge philosopher, skeptic of Christianity, deep skeptic. He wrote, I do not think that the real reason why people accept Christianity has anything to do with argumentation. They accept it merely on emotional grounds. That was his assessment. Sadly, it seems Bertrand Russell never met a Christian like Paul. For evangelism, as we think about it, evangelism is not manipulation. Right? We're not emotionally coercing and seeking to exploit people into heaven. It's not manipulation. It's not humiliation. We're not shaming people into heaven. It's not terrorization, right, in the sense that we're scaring people into heaven. It's not confrontation where we merely browbeat people into heaven. It's not just disputation, right, where we argue and debate and maybe we think about arguments around creation and we try to argue people into the kingdom alone. No, Paul says it's persuasion. We use reason compelling arguments in order to appeal to the conscience. And that desire to persuade, as we see evidenced in Paul's own life, that desire to persuade is done all the while showing respect for the individual, just as Paul does, and yet being very clear at the same time with the gospel. So my Christian friend, right, particularly member of UBC this morning, when was the last time you sought to persuade one with the gospel? Just think about that question for a moment. When was the last time you legitimately sought to persuade one for the gospel? Not just mentioned you were a Christian or in passing said something good or kind or gracious about Christianity, but really sought to persuade and share the gospel with a non-Christian. You know, the reality of us. All of us uh, will think about things and talk about those things that what? That most excite us. So maybe it's relationships, right? Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's politics. Friend, I think that begs the question, does the gospel still excite you? Does it still excite you? Or is it the fear maybe of others' opinions of you? Maybe you don't want them to think less of you as you share the gospel with them. You know, I know what that's like, right? Every one of us, if we're honest, or at least near every one of us, is going to admit that when we share the gospel, there will be an element of either selfishness or fear. There can be a reluctance in that, and I know that reluctance in my own heart. There is always a reason, right, to share at another time. So like, I'm dog tired, this isn't great. Or I've got other things, I had other things planned, this isn't the best timing. Or you know what? I'm not sure what to say, or I know if someone else were here, they could say it better. I don't want to mess up, right? There are a million reasons why in a moment we won't seek to persuade and share with the gospel. But friends, we have the greatest news in the world to share, and it finally doesn't depend upon us. We seek simply to present it winsomely, persuasively. And friend, the best news Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning, right? The grace that God has particularly shown you, thinking about where you would be maybe this moment if God had not saved you, where you would be without him. The fact that you this morning have nothing apart from him, that your sin had separated you from him, but he has been kind toward you. He has been patient with you. 
He has given you an eternity you don't deserve and a Savior you didn't love until he set his love upon your own hearts. That's how God has loved you. That's the goodness of the gospel to you. Friends, we won't share what we don't treasure. And you may need to spend some time just even this week building that treasure, reflecting on the goodness of the gospel to you in Christ because Paul treasured it and so he sought to persuade with it. Despite the rumor mill, right, despite the gossip and the public smear campaign that Paul's opponents, right, they were about, Paul says what we are is known to God. It's known to God, and he says it also should be evident to you, Corinthians, verse 11. Paul's saying, listen, my life's an open book. I shouldn't have to remind you, he says. You should know about these things. Right, the way he's loved them, the way Paul's cared for them, the way that he has given his life for them, the way he has really poured out his soul for them, they seem almost confused, distant, hesitate to associate with him, even embarrassed by him. Paul's saying, you should feel pride in me, and instead you're embarrassed by me. And Paul says all this, verse 12, not to commend himself, but he says this so that, verse 12, when his opponents stand up, you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. See, the Corinthians, what did they value? They valued a show. They prized a performance. They deeply understood those values of self-promotion, self-exaltation, self-glorification. That was their game, and that was the game that Paul refused to play. So they prided themselves on that which was external, right, superficial, transitory. That's what they prided themselves on, as opposed to the heart which is internal and essential and as well eternal, right? That's what they should be prizing. So we've already seen, what do they value? Letters of recommendation, right, back in 3.1. Jewish ancestry, we're going to see in chapter 11. Apostolic signs, ecstatic experiences. They put all of their hope on those outward things. And they therefore evaluated Paul on the basis of the world's own weights and measures, physical appearance, rhetorical eloquence, right, financial affluence, all that stuff. That's how they valued Paul. And Paul's saying, guys, you know better. The Lord was it. The Lord looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. So there's a famous right, example of this in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel was tasked for replacing Saul as king. And if you remember, Samuel comes and he's brought to Jesse and his sons in Bethlehem. And all the sons are paraded before Samuel. And the first one is Eliab. And he comes forward and Samuel takes one look at this guy and he's like, oh yeah, he's the one. This one is the one. Surely, we read in 1 Samuel 16, 6, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. That's what Samuel says, right? The guy looked the part, stately and strong, right? All confidence, all charisma, just who you'd want as a king, right? He just graduated Bethlehem U, was like the big linebacker, ran the father's business. Everything about Eliab was good. His name even means, my God is father, And so we can understand why when he sees him, he's already reaching for that horn to anoint him with oil as the next king. Friends, isn't that our way? We like those and value those that are movers and shakers. We 
We value and choose what is impressive and what is shiny and what is powerful and what is pleasing. Those are the leaders we desire. Those are the leaders we elect into office, perhaps because those are the people we most want to be. Friends, that may be our way, but God is helping us see that's not his way. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Right there, they should be remembering Saul. Saul was tall, right? Don't be misled by that. I'll shrink. I'm not a tall man, all right? Not the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Friends, that begs the question, where do we prize outward appearances and where do we neglect the heart? Say in our own political leaders. We say we value as Christians things like integrity and character, but in practice so often those things take a back seat when those individuals can entertain or impress or deliver for us. Even in our church leaders, We often value what? Those who can pack a room. Those who can gather a crowd. We've noted part comedian, part counselor, part business manager. Like that's what the Corinthians value. That's what so many of us value in our churches. And we're willing to even overlook discretions and indiscretions, I should say. Yes, as long as the brand is doing well, we'll overlook those things. And we don't stop to ask, you know, who is that person when they're alone with God? Are they ever alone with God? How do they pray? Do they pray? Do they ever weep over their sin? Over the sins of others? Right? And over time, if we're not careful, what? We value charisma, not character. We value giftedness, not godliness. Ability, not humility. All of those things. Is that what we value in our church leaders as well? Even in this time as a church, what do you prize and value in this time? You know, there's a journalist and political commentator by the name of Yuval Levine, and he's identified this great reversal in our institutions. And he's noted that institutions used to be about formation. But today, institutions are just all about performance. Friends, can the same be said of us as we gather Do you come to church to be formed? Or do you actually come in some way to be entertained? Are you quickly bored? Because somewhere inside you, you expect that itch of entertainment. What about our own lives? Take repentance. Do we value tears and moving professions over genuine heart change? Are we tempted in our own lives to make excuses like the world instead of taking responsibility? Do we regularly see ourselves as the victim and rarely, if ever, the culprit? What about our relationships? You know, do your own relationships, maybe even here at church, those friendships, do they look a whole lot like the world? Governed by outward appearances, same season of life, share the same backgrounds, the same hobbies, the same political views. Friends, the world gets that. And those relationships aren't wrong, but if that's the entirety of your relationships, I think it begs a question. It begs a question of whether or not you're operating again on the world's values. 
Are there people in your life that you are friends with because of Christ? Christ is the only glue in which you guys are friends. In any other world, you'd never be friends. But in Christ, you are because the heart is the same and the heart is there. Friends, I could just keep going, but if we're not careful, it is easy in here and in our own hearts to prize the world's values, outward appearances, not what's inside. And Paul's going to continue with this somewhat enigmatic saying in verse 13. And he'll move from there and say, now, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we're in our right mind, it is for you. Now, I confess, it's a little bit difficult to understand exactly what Paul's getting at here. That word for beside ourselves can refer to one who's lost their mind, right? We might say someone who's a few cards short of a full deck, right? Little loco, little crazy. It's actually the very same word that Jesus' family uses against him back in Mark 3.21 when he's healing and he's calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath and Jesus' own family went and when they heard it, they seized him saying he's out of his mind, Right? It's the same word that Paul uses here. And it could be that, that basically the Corinthian detractors are saying, Paul, listen, you are out of your mind. All of your fanaticism, all of this zeal, right? Paul, you've got to relax a little. Your letters, you're taking this religion thing a little too far. This is all a little too serious for you. You've got to dial it down a little bit, Paul. Maybe that's what they're saying. Because, friends, when we minister like Jesus did, when we call people to holiness like Jesus did, when we love like Jesus did and preach unflinchingly like he did and hold the same high moral standards that he did and refuse to conform to the world like he did, the world will think us mad. It's no surprise that Bill Maher famously called biblical Christians as those who suffer from a neurological disorder. Crazy is what he called Christians for some of these very same reasons. You know, yet these words, though, these words beside ourselves and sort of being of right mind, those two words, though, they were also used regularly in rhetorical handbooks of the day, right, for rhetoricians, people preparing to, to speak and debate, to refer to sort of proper and improper ways to do it. So the someone who was out of their mind was someone whose delivery lacked polish, would come across as a bit rough and a bit disheveled. And maybe that's what they were saying about Paul, because we know Paul back in 1 Corinthians 2 said, listen, I don't engage in rhetoric like you all. I don't use that flowery language, right? The, all the eloquence, the lofty speech. And he may be saying, yeah, you can credit God for that. I come with not the wisdom of this world, but in the power of the Spirit. It could be that's what he's saying. And yet if my letters, he says, seem cogent to you, lucid, well, yeah, that is for your benefit. Because all of this, whether in word, all that I do, the motivation of my lips, all of that is driven because I fear the Lord and want to please him. But that's not the only motivation Paul has, friends. It's not the only motivation we should have. It's also this love of the Lord that Paul moves on to in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls, or you could translate that, compels us. So it's not just that the fear of the Lord ought to motivate us in our speaking as we please him and persuade others. It's secondly that this love of the Lord ought to motivate our living. That's where he goes next. Secondly, that the love of the Lord motivates our living. 
Now, when Paul speaks of the love of Christ, it's possible Paul could be speaking of his love for Christ. So some of you, if you read the passage this week or just heard it, you might have assumed there Paul speaking of his own love for Christ, and that's possible. And of course, Paul does love Christ. But actually, everything in the argument and where Paul goes in the following verses, well, that all accents what Christ has done for Paul, how Christ has acted out of love for Paul. So in context, I think it's more natural not to read this love of Christ as Paul's love for Christ, but rather as Christ's love for Paul. And it's this love that Christ has for Paul that then in turn motivates Paul. After all, we love, as we know from 1 John, we love only because he first loved us. And this love of Christ, Paul says, controls or compels him. In other words, it guides and shapes and arranges and flavors all that Paul does. So my Christian friend, I want to ask you this morning, how do you know right now that Christ loves you? How do you know that? How do you evaluate that? Because our temptation, and clearly the Corinthian temptation, was to value the love of Christ on the basis of circumstances. For when other people love us, what do they do? When other people love us, they do kind things for us. They make our lives a little better, a little more enjoyable to us. When they love us, they often work to take burdens off of us. They certainly don't work to intentionally make our lives harder and more stressful and less enjoyable. That's not usually how people love us. But friends, is that how Paul knows that Christ loves him? Is it because at this point in Paul's life and ministry, he is cruising in the fast lane? Right? Is Paul crushing it in life right now? Does Paul know that Christ loves him because you know, he's out there knocking down mojitos in some beach in the Mediterranean? Is that how Paul knows? Well, no, not at all. No, he's not pulling in 50 Gs for every motivational talk. I learned that's how much motivational speakers earn, by the way. That was a different introduction to the sermon. It's a lot of money, but Paul's not making that kind of money doing motivational speaking. No, Paul's life It's grown exceptionally harder. And the people who ought to love him and ought to cherish him in Corinth, well, those people have instead even turned on him. And so circumstantially, Paul's life looks like an utter mess. And that's what has many of the Corinthians confused, right? Because they judge how? By outward appearances. And outwardly, Paul looks like a failure, not a rousing success. And friends, like the Corinthians, if we're not careful, we're going to judge Christ's love for us on the basis of our own circumstances. And we might think, right, if we're crushing it in life, so to speak, that of course, well, man, God must love me and he must be for me. And then when life takes that dreaded turn, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's with a child, whether it's with our health, when it suddenly feels like we've gone from that sort of beach to a war zone and we're bloodied and bruised and limping and everywhere we look there's carnage, everything is hard and everything is upside down, those are those moments where if we're not careful we're going to start concluding God must not love me. Somewhere along the way God has abandoned me. But notice Paul doesn't measure Christ's love 
on how well his life is turning out, whether or not Paul's life is going according to plan. Where does Paul look to measure Christ's love for him? Where does he go in his argument? He goes back to the cross, doesn't he? It's because he has concluded this, verse 14, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Christian, recognize if you are new in the faith, or maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time, you measure Christ's love for you not by looking at your present circumstances, but by looking back to the cross. So it's said often that Christians drive with their eyes regularly in the rearview mirror, looking back to the cross. Because around us, I can get messy. Back to the cross, things become clear and certain. And if you measure your life by your circumstances, some of you may be thinking, man, I'm at the top of Christ's list because everything is going well. Things are great in my life. I'm one of Christ's faves, right? I'm a, I'm a bestie. Things are good. And you may be actually concluding the wrong thing. And some of you, oppositely, may be thinking that you've dropped to the bottom of Christ's list, right? That you're in a timeout in the penalty box, whatever image you want to use, and God is displeased with you, perhaps angry with you, because things are not going to plan for you. But friends, rain or shine, in thick and thin, Paul knows Christ loves him because Christ ascended a cross for him and took beatings for him and bore the bitter nails for him and suffered for him and died for him. And that's how he knows the cross is where Paul goes. There is that repeated language, isn't there, of for all, verse 14. And then he died for all, verse 15. And then, for their sake, he died and was raised. Friends, don't miss that. That's just the language of substitution in the Bible. Christ did not die merely as an example that we now should be motivated to follow in his steps. That is not the encouragement to Christians. Christ died. Is there a sense in which Christ is an example? Absolutely. But first and foremost, he is our substitute. He died for us in our place. Friends, that's what we sang so wonderfully in that last song of ours going into the pastoral prayer, right? Oh, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. Do you hear substitution? Thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me. A victim led. Thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But thou hast drained that last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup. Love drank it up. Thy bruising healeth me. Christian friend, do you not just know that, but do you feel the weight of your Savior's love for you? Do you feel it when we hear words that we've just sung like that? Friends, who loves 
like this. Nobody, I promise, nobody has loved you as well as Christ has loved you. And nobody has done for you as much as Christ has done for you. And nobody has willingly borne your shame. Nobody has willingly carried your guilt as Christ has. Right? The eternal condemnation you and I, we rightly deserve. Right? He bore it in our sin. Right? In our sin, we pierced his skin. We did. And yet he still took it. With but a breath, friends, the Lord on the cross could have said, you know what, enough of this. He could have gotten down and wiped every one of us off the face of the earth. And that would have been just. That would not have been wrong. But he didn't do that. He hung and uttered his last breath. It is finished. And friends, those marks, those nails, right? those marks will be ever fixed on his hands. The love of Christ, what is it elsewhere we sing? The love of Christ is rich and free, fixed on his own eternally. Nor earth nor hell can it remove, long as he lives, his own he'll love. Friends, how long does Christ live? He lives forever. How long will we be loved in Christ? Eternally, forever. Some of us need to stop our navel-gazing, right? We need to stop becoming fixated on circumstances, and we need to go back to that cross. And we need to see Christ there. And we need to see him there. You need to see him there for you, hanging for you, bearing beatings for you, and even there in that moment smiling toward you because he loved you and he wanted you and he was determined to have you. And so he would go to stop at no expense to take you and make you for his own. That's how Christ loves. Friend, it's said that no power is so great, no motivation is so strong as knowing that someone loves you. Do you feel any of that about the love of Christ this morning? You know, it can be pretty humbling, sometimes humiliating, because I know my dog loves me. Sweet Wallace. He's kind of an old, portly chocolate lab. My wife jokes we're growing old together. And whenever I come home, his tail thumps on the ground when he sees me. You know, when others come home and I'm there, Wallace barely recognizes they've entered the room. Like he lifts a half lazy eye to acknowledge their presence. And that's all he does. But when I come home, he trots over, right? That tail wags, that head is high, and he comes over and he gives me like a little nudge on the thigh. It's, I guess it's like a canine fist bump. Like, yeah, I see you. And I'm like, good to see you too, old buddy. That makes me feel so good. Like, there's my dog. Someone notices me, loves me, right? I love my dog. <laughs> but the Bible tells us, it tells me the Savior of the universe loves me. He doesn't just wag his tail for me. He bled for me, died for me was resurrected for me, and is coming back for me. Oh, friends, what hope is that? What joy is that? Friends, what do you even do with that, with a God who loves like that? We don't have categories for that. That is how God has loved us in Christ. Friends, if you haven't professed faith in Christ, and if you've come here this morning, you're not a Christian, I hope you notice that word one. That word one. It's there. Um, in verse 14, one 
has died for all. Many of us, you know, will have fond thoughts toward God, perhaps. You may even prize yourself as a pretty spiritual person, pretty spiritually tolerant person at that too. But recognize for Paul, that kind of spirituality, it's actually not of much use. Paul says there's one who matters. Only one that is uniquely significant. Because, in fact, we're not all winners and there aren't many ways to God. There is but one, Paul says. And apart from Jesus, we're doomed. But in this one, our sin can be born and we can be brought back to God. Because only Jesus of Nazareth, this one, is God in the flesh. Only he lived perfectly. Only he died, as we've seen, as a substitute sacrificially, rose victoriously, right? All of that is true and loves wonderfully, gloriously, eternally. So, friend, why wouldn't you repent of your sins and turn to this Jesus? Why wouldn't you look to him and go to him and trust in him who makes unworthy people like us so worthy in him? He's a glorious Savior. Because here's the thing, we will either bow at his feet or one day we'll be made a footstool at his feet. It's one or the other. But if we sit with him at his feet now, not long from now, we will rise and reign with him eternally. It's a glorious promise. If you want to know God as Father, you need to first know his Son alone as Savior. Friends, do you know Jesus that way? You know, there is a question we've yet to address, though. Who exactly is the all that Paul has in mind in verses 14 and 15? So when Paul said that Christ died for all, is Paul saying that Christ died for all humanity equally or for his believers particularly? That's the question that We have to ask as we look at it carefully. So theologically, is Christ's atonement universal or is it particular? Now, if you're familiar at all with questions like this, this has been a very spirited debate amongst Christians in the past centuries. And Baptists have often divided over this. So you have general Baptists who think that Christ's atonement was, in so many words, universal. And you also have particular Baptists who actually arranged and organized themselves because they thought it was just that particular. Now, as a denomination, to be clear, the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't take a position on this question. As a church, we don't take a position on this question. And yet, here we come to a text, and we have to ask, what does it say? And this isn't a hobby horse. I've been your lead pastor almost six years. I don't think I've ever discussed this publicly. But here it is in the text. So what does the Bible say? Look down at verse 14. Paul writes, one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now stop, that's not really what we expect Paul to say, is it? We would expect Paul to say, one has died for all, therefore all have not died. Or one has died for all, therefore all have lived. So what does Paul mean then when he says, all have died? Now Paul can't mean that all have died physically. And that's how we might first read it. All have died physically. But friends, nowhere in the Bible are we taught that we die physically because Christ died. 
That's just not taught anywhere in the Bible. It is taught very clearly, and Paul teaches this very clearly back in Romans 5 and 6, that we die because we die physically. We die because of Adam, because of our sins in Adam. That much is true. So when Paul says all have died, he can't mean physically there. He must say we've died metaphorically, like we've died, in other words, to ourselves. It's a death to self, this all have died. It's a death to sin, which is exactly what Paul argues in Romans 6 that was read for us earlier. You know, you might have been thinking about baptism, which is great. These things aren't unrelated in Romans 6, but in Romans 6, 7, Paul says the one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans 6, 7. So all die doesn't mean all died physically, but all have died a death to sin, a death to self, a death to flesh, right? A death to the old man, which means all can't mean all people everywhere. So if the all is consistent, it's used the same way in 14 and 15, it can't mean all people everywhere because not all people we know have died to sin and self and the flesh, Right, just we look around the world, we know that's not true. The all must refer to believers, those who have been united to Christ, who have died with Christ, who have been raised with Christ, which shouldn't surprise us because that's exactly where Paul goes in verse 15. And he says that very same thing. So I think the Bible teaches, and I think we're seeing it right here, I think the Bible teaches definite atonement. That when Jesus died, he didn't die for the sins of the whole world. He died specifically for his elect. And that's not just a theological conviction. I think that's a biblical one. And we're seeing it, for example, right here. Right here in 2 Corinthians 5. Or John 6, when Jesus says, I came to save those whom the Father had given to me. The elect. It's why in Matthew 121, we read that Jesus died for his people. Or Acts 20, 28, for the church. Or Ephesians 5, 25, for his bride. Or Ephesians 1, 4, for those chosen in Christ Jesus. Paul assumes the consequences of Christ's death are personal and powerful and effective, not merely general, possible, and contingent. Friends, this is the whole logic of the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, with the sacrificial system, were those sacrifices done for the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, and all the surrounding lands and countries and nations and peoples? No, they were done specifically for God's people, for the sins of his covenant people. And so Christ, the fulfillment of that system, he died not for all people indiscriminately, but for his people particularly. For to say that Christ merely made salvation on the cross possible for all men is to say that he made it actual for no man. And we say Christ saves sinners. And when we say that, we mean Christ saves sinners. That's what the cross is about. Not potentially, not hypothetically, but actually saves sinners. Every last one of them. And those friends are the marching orders he gave us. He saves every last one of them. And so now we have to go get them. That's what we do. We preach Christ to them. Which is why I think definite atonement is the very fuel at the heart of missions. That's a whole different sermon though. 
The key for Paul is this wasn't just some abstract theology. For Paul, this had real ethical implications today. Christ died for us so that we might live for him. And to live for Christ is to love like Christ. Sacrificially, joyfully, enduringly. And friends, I didn't leave us much time at all to think about those implications. And that's in part for one reason. Well, two, we've run out of time. Second reason. It's one of the great wonders of the gospel. One of the great wonders of the gospel is we actually do more when we hear less about what we need to do for God and more about what God has already done for us. It's one of the wonders of the gospel that we actually do more when we hear less about what we have to do for God and hear more about what God has already done for us. So friend, go back to that question, what motivates you? Right? What motivates you this morning? Money, power, success, approval, whatever it is. Friends, could anything possibly be more humbling than the fear of the Lord? And can anything possibly be more encouraging than the everlasting love of this Lord? Friends, what will motivate you? And what will those motivations say about you? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise that you provide us such a wonderful text in moments of maybe confusion or despair, in moments when things are not going our way, as they certainly weren't for Paul, that we can look back to the cross and we have certain hopes and certain promises and a certain future that helps us make sense of our present. And we pray that even now as we come to sing and to celebrate baptism, we would celebrate that good work that you are doing. In Jesus' name. Amen.